0: Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Jenna and I am a community and environmental sociology student. Today I will talk about situations where public and community attitudes might appear to invite pollution. On the contrary, however, I don't think people are apt to oppose a clean environment or favor pollution. Understanding why people might appear to invite or feel indifferent towards unjust environmental pollution utilizes theories of demobilization and quiet mobilization it should not be decoupled from industry influence and maneuvers as well as identity of community members i will provide examples and address sociological theory that has been applied in research to talk about this with you all today thanks for listening this podcast playlist is all about environmental justice environmental justice is a paradigm defined initially at the 1991 People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit. It is an ideology founded by people of color in America. It addresses disproportionate environmental harms faced by marginalized communities. Two key principles of the environmental justice paradigm are ecological responsibility and justice. The environmental justice movement continues to be impacted and driven by race, class and gender in America today. Today, I'll be talking about environmental justice in the context of white, rural, mostly working-class American communities. Race grants members of these communities' privilege that is not necessarily theorized extensively about through the environmental justice paradigm. Again, this is because environmental justice wasn't necessarily created for communities or situations like this. I would not claim that it is a perfect fit, especially considering public approval of polluting industries in these communities. The communities I will talk about today are heavily polluted by extractive industries. I'll be talking about communities in Louisiana, central Appalachia, and Pennsylvania where the petrochemical industry, coal mining, and fracking are respectively major and heavily polluting industries. I will also be talking about the power of influence of industry in these communities and that can transcend specific communities of operation like these. Residents in these communities have suffered disproportionate environmental harms. I will discuss these with you today, but they also do not tend to oppose industry or support regulation of industry. They may even invite industry. For example, in research in a community in Pennsylvania, Colin Gerald Mack, and Edward T. Walker advance a theory of quiet mobilization to suit the community movement they research to invite the fracking industry. I will discuss a few theories and concepts I have found relevant in industry interesting throughout my research for this podcast with you. These include theories and conceptualizations of demobilization, quiet mobilization, treadmill of production, legitimation, gender identity, identity correspondence, and ideological manipulation. Traditionally, a sociological research paper would describe theory first. I have to make a few things clear about this to you all before proceeding. I am an undergraduate student in community and environmental sociology and I won't claim to be a fantastically diligent student either. I am very happy to be able to share reading and research I've done with you all. However, the research I have done is not comprehensive. I am not talking about, nor am I even familiar with, a lot of sociological theory and or research that is relevant to these topics. For this reason, I'll hold off on talking about theory until I describe the research it is more relevant to. Across the communities I discuss, economic disadvantage is common. Arlie Russell Hochschild in Strangers in Their Own Land, which is about a community in Louisiana that is heavily populated with petrochemical industries, points out that this can create an inviting economic climate for industry. As Hochschild describes, poorer states tend to be less regulated and industries tend to seek out less regulated operational environments. Economic disadvantage is also visible in coal mining regions of Appalachia. On one hand, coal mining companies might have sought out these regions for exploitation. Philip Lewin describes the concept of magicianship as being exploited by the coal mining company in that region. In this context, Lewin explains magicianship as coal mining being carried out in remote concealed areas within the deep rural community and concealing of pollution by operating late at night. Combined with lack of infrastructure connecting community members to each other, in Shale County, which is the name Lewin has dubbed the rural Appalachian coal mining community he researched, community members did not always come into direct experiences with with pollution and therefore tended to think of it as an individual problem. On the other hand, Shannon Elizabeth Bell and Richard York, in describing coal mining communities in West Virginia, point out categorization of central Appalachia as an internal colony or internal periphery that has been created to provide cheap resources to the rest of the country. Coal mining is the most prevalent industry in this region. Following dependency theory, which is addressed by Bell and York in this research as well, this region is exploited excessively economically for the benefit of other regions and thus economic disadvantage in central Appalachia could also be thought of at least in part as the result of a creation of these unequal power structures. This is a bit of an aside, though, as the focus of this podcast is more on environmental concerns and reactions rather than economics. Extreme environmental pollution is also common across the communities I discuss. Louisiana is the home of the infamous Cancer Alley. Household researches in communities surrounding Lake Charles, Louisiana. This area is home to a number of industries, most notably petrochemical, and is in within miles of Cancer Alley. In 2012, the Bayou Corn sinkhole turned the Bayou Corn community upside down and forced the indefinite evacuation of over 300 residents. It was caused by a local drilling company, Texas Brine, drilling for salt to be sold to chlorine manufacturers and fracking companies. Regulations were in place that would have curtailed this risky drilling, but they were ignored by the company. As well, communities in this area are disproportionately susceptible to cancer the American Cancer Society ranks Louisiana as having the second highest rate of incidence of cancer for men. In Hochschild's ethnographic interviews, multiple incidences of cancer within families is a commonality. Compared to other regions of the U.S., central Appalachians disproportionately suffer higher rates of cancer, respiratory disease, and cardiovascular disease. This region is defined by coal and other natural resource extraction. Effects of coal mining on population health have been a concern for decades in the region. In West Virginia, respiratory problems from coal dust and well water contamination from coal slurry being injected underground have led to serious health conditions, including cancers, colitis, skin disorders, and organ failure. Coal slurry is also held in West Virginia in impoundments. In Martin County, West Virginia, in 2000, a coal slurry impoundment gave way, flooding the surrounding area with 250 million gallons of coal waste. For context, this is 20 times larger than the infamous Exxon Valdez oil spill of 1989. In Shell County, also in central Appalachia, these conditions hold. Significant health risks are experienced disproportionately by community members. The air is polluted, waterways have been polluted, and community infrastructure has been destroyed. I would also like to discuss a region in northern Appalachia, in Pennsylvania, where fracking is a major industry. As a simplified explanation, fracking is a process by which natural gas is extracted from the earth using chemicals and water. Technically no peer reviewed or controlled studies directly link fracking to disease or even to groundwater contamination. However, studies correlate increased ailments and presence of shale gas extraction. Have you ever seen the movie Gasland where people living near a natural gas extraction site are able to light the water from their tap on fire this is the type of contamination many have concerns about due to fracking. The research done on all three of these regions was done by different social scientists. The regions and community studies have a glaringly obvious commonality though. They have suffered disproportionate harm and risk due to environmental pollution by industry. The interest to researchers in these communities and regions blossom because of the lack of opposition to these industries or environmental regulations on extractive industries. I go on to describe different answers, mostly in the form of sociological theories and concepts that have been applied to this paradoxical conundrum. Why my people who have the most experience with industry pollution continue to support and even invite industry? Hochschild even dubs this conundrum in reference to Louisiana, the Great Paradox. One theory I will introduce now following the lead of Bell and York is the treadmill of production theory. It ties ecological destruction to capitalist as well as other forms of economic production. It explains that those who have the most experience of acute industrial pollution might not fight it because of economic dependence on the offending industry. However, in West Virginia, the coal mining industry employs significantly less people than it had previously. In 1948, uh, 131,700 coal miners were employed in the state, and by 2006, that number had dwindled to 20,100 due to the ability of coal mining companies to replicate or exceed previous production levels with a fraction of the workers. Similarly, in Louisiana, Hoschild also points out dwindling employment levels within extractive petrochemical industries for community members also due to increased mechanization of production? It's certainly an interesting question. From here I will get into ideological manipulation, gender identity, and identity correspondence. I will get into these sociological concepts through theories of demobilization and finally quiet mobilization. Environmental demobilization describes individuals withdrawing support for environmental movements, as well as halting seeking restitutions for environmental harms. Seeking restitutions for environmental harms has taken place in all of the community case studies I have described to you. Factors leading to demobilization generally studied by scholars generally could be subdivided into four categories, legitimation tactics, violent repression, co-optation, and identity conflicts. Demobilization is also described by Lewin in Shell County as an active process in that community members had to actively choose not to pursue environmental movements. Co-optation describes the use of resources by companies and other concerned parties to dissuade and discourage activists with opposing interests. I will discuss identity conflicts further later on. In all of the cases I discussed, violent repression is not a predominant factor in contemporary demobilization. However, co-optation and legitimation tactics both apply. In Shell County, Baker Energy is described by Lewin as colonizing civil society and establishing panoptic control. For example, as Lewin describes, whenever free space emerged in which candid discussion about mining became possible, the industry co-opted it. One of his interviewees describes how, after they started performing folk songs about mountaintop removal mining, Baker Energy actually hired a band to perform songs with an opposing message. Industry also tends to lengthen lawsuits from companies waiting until they pass on. This is reported by Hoschild in uh, research in Louisiana. Legitimation tactics are pervasive in Central Appalachian and Louisiana industrial communities as well. Legitimation is ideological manipulation. A crisis of legitimation occurs for industries polluting communities when they no longer provide fundamental economic opportunities to residents. In West Virginia, the West Virginia Coal Association formed a grassroots group called Friends of Coal. Through this group, Bell and York explained how the coal industry in the region responded to this legitimation crisis. The two main strategies employed by this non-grassroots group are the appropriation of West Virginia cultural icons and becoming pervasively visible within the social landscape of West Virginia. Their actions include sponsoring, included sponsoring pro vast fishermen, big football games, sponsoring numerous community events and entering the school system. Identity conflicts could be thought of as the other side of the coin of environmental demobilization. Shannon Elizabeth Bell, who I have referenced a few times already, and Yvonne a. Braun published research applying gender theory to identity in this context. In Appalachian communities, women are more likely to participate in environmental justice activism than men. Bell and Braun explained that women take on their mothering identity in doing so. On the other hand, men are trying to fit into a hegemonic masculinity identity as a sole provider for family financial needs. Specific to coal mining communities in central Appalachia, Bell and Braun identify identify a masculine culture of silence that discourages men from speaking out against coal mining practices. So although coal mining does not provide as many jobs as it used to, it is tied in with hegemonic male identity in the region. Therefore, there is a lack of identity correspondence between men and environmental justice activism for their own benefit in this situation. Another example of identity conflicts and demobilization relates back to the treadmill of production theory economic dependence on an industry can explain why those who are most affected by pollution might not be likely to oppose that industry. As I've also described, and also as is included in the treadmill of production theory, the central Appalachian and Louisiana communities are experiencing dwindling economic benefits from the respective industries in their areas. Thus, for example, Friends of Coal is attempting to tie the perceived economic identity of West Virginia to coal mining. The factors leading to demobilization generally recognized by scholars also isn't necessarily a complete picture yet. For example, in Shell County, Lewin contends that they do not fully explain why community members demobilize. Lewin extends concepts and theory of demobilization through his case study by explaining that their demobilization resulted from the subtle acts of obstruction, non-cooperation, and dissimulation they face when attempting to resolve their grievances, feelings of frustration, isolation, and humiliation. Continuing this idea, I would like to talk now about quiet mobilization. This theory is advanced by Gerald Mack and Walker in research they have published about a Pennsylvania, which is in the northern Appalachia, community. Quiet mobilization is a fitting description for their research into this community because they invited the fracking industry into their community through a self-organized landowner coalition with the common goal of seeking out leases with gas firms. As well, the economic benefits would not necessarily outweigh the shared negative externalities of fracking in their communities because it can't be known how much money landowners will actually make until fracking starts. Quiet mobilization also applies to Hostile's research in the Louisiana community because the community also collectively supports a risky extractive industry. Gerald Mack and Walker point out that more overt forms of activism might not be appealing to rural white communities like these because of an aversion to more overt forms of activism. I think this could all be tied together in part by looking back at history. I would like to share with you all a takeaway from the book Toxic Sludge is Good For You by John Stauber and Sheldon Rampton. This book describes propaganda by industry as an art and science. For example, the cigarette industry funded and appealed to individuals to orchestrate what appeared to be grassroots groups. This is mirrored in Friends of Coal, the faux grassroots organization I shared with you. I think this example is worth sharing because it is a commonality across history between two pervasive and notably unhealthy industrial giants. In conclusion, social production of the rights of industry is not simple. While there are existing theories and conceptualizations, there are also more theories to be explored, or I'm sorry, more questions to be explored. Thank you so much.